If you have Bibles with you, you can open up to Luke chapter 15. This is my fourth week in a series of messages on the Father's love, based upon a book by Wayne Jacobson called He Loves Me. The subtitle is Learning to Live in the Father's Affection. Great book. It's really been a blessing to me. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to get it. You will not be disappointed. The three main points that I have for this for this series of messages is this. Number one, God loves us extravagantly. And the second point is that unfortunately most of us are unaware of that fact. My third point is this, that to a significant degree, the fault lies at the feet of organized religion. Take note, I said organized religion, not the church. The church is God's bride and he loves her. One day, she will be without spot or blemish. Word of God says so. One day, will be one. Jesus prayed next to Father. Father, make them one. And I believe that a day will come when we'll actually see that happen. It may be the greatest miracle that God performs on earth. But we will be one. Sadly, today is not that day. Okay? And so we have, we have a whole lot less of a bride and a whole lot more of an organization. And as that organization has functioned, it has left this hole and this void in too many Christians. They just don't know that God loves them. And it's astonishing to me. I really feel that I can, I can make that statement with, with some significant degree of authority. I've been a Christian for 35 years and a pastor for more than 25 I've been, if you do anything for 25 years, you're probably going to be an expert at it, right? You may not do it well, but you're going to know it. I know this. I've been around this. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm not giving up on, on the church. But there are some things that need to change. And foundational is that we have set in our hearts a knowledge of the Father's love that's unshakable. So in the first part of the series, I took you to a great verse, 1 John 3, 1. It says, see what great love the Father's lavished on us. I told you that lavish is as, as in a downpour of rain. We talked about daisy-petal Christianity. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, based upon the circumstances of our life or our behavior and how it's time to throw those daisy petals away. Hmm. In the Father's love, too, we looked at the attributes of God and the, and the incarnation and asked questions. If God has all this power, this limitless power, then why did he come in a disguise? Why did he come in the form of a baby in a manger? Why did he do that? And I believe this. I did it, he did it for the purpose of relationship. <coughs> Jesus walked on earth with his brothers and it's what, he, it's what God had wanted from the beginning. When Jesus, when the Father walked in the garden, in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, and finally, they were, God was able to walk among men in the form of intimate relationship. That's why he came hidden. In all of his powerfulness, limitless power, that's why he came into disguise. Not to hide himself from us, but to give us an opportunity to draw near to him. Draw near to him in honesty, in authenticity, 
You know, if all God wanted was obedient servants, why go through all the trouble? If all he wanted from us was to perform, if all he wanted from us was to serve and to be obedient, why come through all that trouble to put on a disguise? Because he wants so much more than that. He wants more than obedience from us. He wants more than our ability to serve. He wants our hearts. And he offers us his. And last week we talked about motives. I challenged you with this question. Why do you do what you do? Why are you a Christian? Did you decide to become a Christian just to get the coveted get out of hell free card? Was that why you decided to accept Jesus? If that's, I mean, because most evangelistic methods are this. I will dangle you over the fires of hell until you agree to walk down the aisle and say the magic words, right? Isn't that how it is? I mean, that's, I mean, I've seen a lot of that. So if your only reason, if your only motive for becoming a Christian was to avoid hell, you've missed the best part of this whole deal. That's intimate friendship with God. That's why he created all that is. That's why he's... He purposefully entered into our lives for the purpose of relationship. There's no fear in love. Scripture says that. Perfect love casts out fear. So how can we enter into a relationship with God on the basis of fear? I don't know. Something screwy here. But yet it's the way that most of the church will coerce its members, manipulate its members, even veiled threats to its members to get them to do the things they want them to do so the organization can keep on functioning. Whoa. This bride still has lots of spots and lots of wrinkles. There's a better way. I am committed to this better way. I am all in on this better way. And it's on the foundation of the unchanging truth and fact that the Father loves us lavishly and extravagantly. We asked a question last week, is God the angry judge or the loving Father? And I told you, look at Jesus. If you want to know who the Father is, look at Jesus. He's the perfect representation of the Father. If you want to know God's, the Father's motives, look at Jesus. Jesus' words and actions perfectly represent the Father's motivations. And if you want to know, if you want to know Papa's heart, look at Jesus. Jesus perfectly reflects the heart of the Father. In Christ, we see the self-sacrificing, all-loving, merciful heart of God the Father. So, Today, the Father's love for. I want to take a look at a popular parable in Scripture. I want to look at the prodigal son. So if you're open to Luke 15, follow along as I read that parable, beginning at verse 11. Scripture says there was a man who had two sons. The youngest son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. 
After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a, to a citizen of that country, who sent him out to his fields to feed the pigs. He, no, he longed to fill his stomachs, stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me want like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And he was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he, is, because he, has, um, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat to go and celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed a fatty calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because your brother, this brother of yours, was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. Lord, I thank you for the truth in your word, the power that's in your word. Lord, open our hearts, open our eyes, and take a fresh new look at your word. Let it have its full impact on us. Amen? classic text. This is, I'm sure if you've been churched for a while, you've heard many sermons on this. And you've heard probably all types of great insight into the prodigal and his experience and the stuff the father gave him. Great stuff. I've preached sermons like that. I want to take a different look at it today. I want to look at this story not from the perspective of the prodigal son, but from the perspective of the father. So this is a story of, of two sons estranged from their father, but in very different ways. This text is profoundly important for this reason. Because in this parable, we have Jesus describing for us his father. Jesus is describing the heart and the ways and the actions of his heavenly father. It's priceless if we look at it from that perspective. 
Jesus knows the Father. Unlike anyone who's ever known the Father, He knows the Father. And He tells us this story about the Father with His two sons. And He's a Father like no other. Anyone hearing this story for the first time would be shocked at the Father's actions. His arrogant youngest son dishonors him by asking him for his inheritance while he's still alive. How dare he? It's as if he was saying to his father, I wish you were dead already. Just give me the money. And by all indication, the father's nowhere near death's door. What kind, what kind of son does that? Even if we could somehow excuse or explain away the son's premature desire for the family fortune, it's the father's response that absolutely defies comprehension. He gives it to him. <laughs> I can understand a, a young, immature son asking for it. I might have a box for that. But what kind of father then gives him the money? Most fathers I know would have said, not yet, son. Your day will come, but not yet. It's even more shocking than the fact that the son would ask is that the father would give it to him. He divides, he divides the inheritance between the two sons, gives the younger son his share, and then lets him go. How many fathers would do that? Especially knowing that the son's up to no good. Not only give him the money, but then let him go. And the son, of course he blew the money, right? He blew through the inheritance. Found a new translation this week called the Oxford Jewish Bible. And it defines it this way. He wasted his riches on sexual immorality. I think the King James is still my favorite. Wasted his substance with riotous living. The Phillips uh, paraphrase says, squandered his wealth in the wildest extravagance. This is my translation. He partied hard until it was all gone. <laughs> That's what he did. He partied like a crazy man until he had no money left. I could see him. Drinks on the house, right? Next ten rounds are on me. And even with all that, the father didn't nag him. There's nowhere in the story that said the father sent him messages to him. You know? Giving him warnings. You know, you're about to max out yet another credit card. You know, maybe you need to slow down a bit. Nothing. Right? You're ruining the family name. You're making me look bad. Again, nothing. Father doesn't nag his son at all. What kind of father is this? So the son loses it all and ends up completely destitute. And the father doesn't try to rescue him. He didn't chase after him. He didn't tell his son he was being foolish. He didn't even rush off to buy him dinner when famine hit. Instead, what did he do? He waited. He waited for his son. What kind of father is this? So do you think the father was indifferent to his son's plight? Of course not. Any parent who's had a wayward child knows that it's harder to wait than it is to come up, you know, take some kind of action 
to help them come to their senses. It's so much harder to wait. The father waited. And he waited. I can just imagine that every time the father was outside, he'd look down that road, look for the silhouette image of his son, and not see him. Our daughter Lisa, when she was 18 years old, uh, entered a YWAM, a Youth with a Mission. And she was, uh, for six months, she was at their discipleship training school in Australia. And part of the outreach that they did was in Cambodia and Vietnam. But she was away from us for six months. I got to tell you what, man, that was a long six months. And just a couple of days before she flew home, she calls us up and she says, Mom and Dad, I'm thinking about staying longer. <laughs> and I don't know, I think Nadine had wrapped her head around six months. She just kind of braced herself for six months, and her brace was up at six months. So when Lisa said this, she just kind of gave the phone to me and said, okay, you deal with it. So I had a good conversation with her, everything in me screaming, just come home. I just want you to come home. But the words that came out of my mouth is, honey, this, this is, you got to make this call. You know, this is your decision. And so we hung up and prayed real hard for a couple of days, and thank God she came home. We really were missing her. You know, tried hard not to, not to overly influence her. You know, I really wanted her to do what was in her heart to do. And so she made the call to come home. And, and we're living in Washington, and so she's, she's going to arrive at SeaTac Airport in Seattle. It's about a three-and-a-half-hour drive for us, and... And of course, we're eager. We want to see her. It's been so long. So we get there at least an hour early. And then don't you know, the, the flight's delayed. Six hours, the flight's delayed. <laughs> so after six months, I mean, I think we found the chapel, right? And um, I put a few chairs together, you know, took a nap. Because by the time she got home and then we had the long drive back, it's going to be really late. And so after all that, that time, that being there an hour early, the six-hour delay, her flight finally arrives. And I can remember standing there trying to look through the sea of people that are coming off just for a glimpse of her. And I told Nadine, I said, I'm going to hug her first. And she looked at me and she said, try it and I'll trip you. (laughs) (laughs) She hugged Lisa first. But I tell you, I can close my eyes right now and I can see her face. And she really saw it. I would catch a glimpse between people. And then they get to embrace her. Oh, my goodness. That waiting for her was so incredibly difficult. It was painfully difficult. You know, the prodigal's father, he wasn't waiting a couple extra hours. Probably wasn't even weeks. Chances are it was months that he's waiting for his son to show up. And scripture tells us, it says that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Oh, the delight. Just that moment, those first few glimpses of Lisa's face, my heart just exploded with delight. I can imagine his father's delight. Not knowing if his son was ever going to come home. He spots his son. He's got to be thin, right? It's a famine in the land. He's filthy. He's been feeding pigs. He's humiliated. He's screwed up 
really, really bad. He's destitute and he's broken. So what does the father do? Does he stand on a front porch with a stern face and his arms folded, tapping his toe, waiting for his son to crawl all the way up to the front porch of the house so he can grovel and beg for forgiveness? No, not this father. Instead, he jumps off the porch, runs down the road after his son. Take notice of cultural facts here. A wealthy man in that culture would have been dressed in long, cumbersome robes. In order to run after his son, he would have needed to lift these robes up and expose his legs. Now, I've never run in a dress, but some of you ladies know it's like to have a long dress on, right? If you want to move quick, you got to pull that thing up. Got a wife, I got a daughter, I've seen this. Am I lying here? That's how it works, right? He would have had to expose his legs to run. In that day, for a man his age to expose his leg, legs was an incredibly dishonorable thing. He was willing to, to do this, not caring what anyone else would think. To run after his son. Not the son who's returning triumphantly from six months in the mission field and oh, I'm so proud. The son who has screwed up in every possible way. He's dishonoring himself to run after the son he's been looking for. What kind of father is this? I can only imagine what the son's thinking, right? So he's just, he's just messed up big time in his life. He's lost everything. He is in such bad shape. He finally decides, I'm going to go back to dad. And here I am at the end of the driveway, and I see him running down after me. Is, is, run, is the father running toward me? <laughs> or is he running at me? Yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine. Was the father filled with joy, or was he furious? I'm thinking the son must have thought the father was upset because he, he jumped right into his practiced speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer to be called your son. I'm thinking he misinterpreted the father's actions right then. Makes me wonder how often we've misinterpreted the father's actions. When he's running after us with extravagant love and passion and zeal and joy. Do we, are we like... We had this dog. <laughs> I love this dog. I'm not saying God's a dog, but just to illustrate the point. We had a yellow lab. She weighed about 80 pounds, thought she was a lap dog. We had a, we had a family room in the basement. And the way the couch was set up, you would come, she would come down the stairs and made like a big arc. And she'd run toward the couch. And when she was about maybe where the second row is, she'd leap with all she got and just slam right into you, right? Now, we knew our dog. And so when she did this, I mean, she would do that, bounce off of you, go upstairs, run around, do it again. <laughs> and again and again. And she would have fun. But I can imagine someone sitting in my house for the first time and Sonny wants to greet them <laughs> as zealously as she did. That could be a little scary, right? 
Sometimes in all his majesty, in all his glory, in all his power, I wonder if we misinterpret his extravagant love for us. So the father runs after the son. The son goes into his speech. I'm not worthy. You notice the father doesn't even acknowledge what the son says. He doesn't accept it. He doesn't excuse it. Instead, this is what scripture says. This is what Jesus says about the father's actions. Jesus could have told, it's a parable. He could have told this story any way he wanted to. Why did he say it like this? He's revealing the father's heart to us. He's telling everyone out there, when you've screwed up really bad, just like this son did, this is the father's heart toward you. Could you see how that would be radical thinking to a Hebrew mindset? They had no box for this at all. The box that they had had ten commandments in it that you had to follow. And if you touch that box, it would kill you, right? Instead, the scripture says, filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son's words were swallowed up in his father's lavish and extravagant love. Not a hint of anger from the father. He didn't talk for one moment about the son's offer. I don't think from the father's perspective, if it was ever on the table, of course you're not going to live as a servant in my house. You're my son. You're not going to be a slave. Instead, what does the father say? He says, let's party. (laughs) Father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Listen to what the father says. He says, quick. Not after a long talking to, not after he's been disciplined, not after some new ground rules are established. Is quick. Not any robe. Not a robe of guilt or shame, manipulation or coercion. Put on him the best robe in the house. You know what? Chances are, it was one of the father's robes. The best robe in the house? Probably one of his. Because the son had already taken all his stuff when he left. Take one of my best robes and put it on him because this is my son. Don't kill any calf. Kill the fatted calf. The one that we have for special celebrations. How could this be? He squandered the family inheritance on his own selfish pleasures and prostitutes. From our perspective... From our worldly mind view, we're thinking this son deserves punishment, not a party. That's not how the father looks at it. At least not the way Jesus describes it. Just what kind of father is this? Isn't it amazing that at each point of the story, the father acted completely the opposite of how we would expect a loving father to act. 
He should have never given such an irresponsible son an early inheritance. He shouldn't have stood by while the son ran off and wasted away. He certainly shouldn't have welcomed him so extravagantly without making him pay for his stupidity. The father's actions make no sense at all unless, unless he wanted something more from his son than mere responsible behavior. Listen to me. The father's actions make zero sense unless what the father wanted was something more from his son than responsible behavior. It's kind of radical. It's kind of mind-blowing. And I think what the father wanted is the key to understanding the story. You know, it may appear that it's the prodigal's actions that drive the story, but I think a closer look shows otherwise. Not the son's, but the father's wants is what drives the story. And he wanted it so desperately, the father did, that he spared nothing to have it. What was it? Was it just to be with his sons? No, no, the story starts in that place. He's, got, he's at home, he's got his two sons there. The father wants more than just to be with his sons. If that's what he wanted, all he had to do was refuse the youngest son's request. That wasn't enough. He wanted something more. What the father didn't have, and what he really wanted, was a loving relationship with his sons. The youngest son only saw him as a lottery ticket. The oldest son only saw him as a taskmaster. Neither son at home, neither son was at home in his father's love. Could that be why he let him go? Rather than force him to stay and deepen his resentment, the father lets him run to the end of himself, to the end of his self-sufficiency. And out there, finally find out who his father really is. The son had no idea how loved he was. And nothing, apparently, absolutely nothing he had done diminished the father's love for him one little bit. What the father wanted was intimate friendship with his sons. He wanted them to know how deeply they were loved and he wanted to experience that love in return. Listen to me. The father wasn't looking for his son's obedience. He was looking for his son's hearts. He wanted their hearts. As the parent of two adult children, there's nothing I enjoy more than moments of when we share honest and open friendship. It's the best part of being parent of adult children. nothing better. I know, they know that I love them and they respond in kind. It's priceless. And that's the point of the story. 
This is the point of Jesus' parable. The father didn't manipulate his sons by anything he did. He was loving the sons at the deepest possible level at every turn. That love explains why the father let him go. And why he embraced him so passionately on his return. The father knew that his son's sins were punishment enough. Sin comes with its own punishment. He didn't need the father to pound it into him. The father ran to his son because he didn't want his son to hurt one extra moment longer. Not one. The son's pain brought him home and nothing else mattered. You know, God feels exactly the same way about you. The Father's not interested in your service or your sacrifice. He only wants you to know how loved you are. And he's hoping that you'll choose to love him in return. Understand that. And everything about life makes sense. Miss that point? Nothing makes sense at all. I know it's kind of wild and crazy for a pastor to say this, but I mean it with all my heart. God the Father is not interested in neither your service or your sacrifice. What he wants is your heart. He wants you to know how extravagantly he loves you, and his hope is that you'll make the choice to love him in return. Know that, and everything makes sense. Miss that point, and this whole thing we call church, or organized religion, gets perverted. It gets twisted. And it gives us the wrong image of who God really is. I know some of you guys follow me on Facebook, but I wrote this the other day. A pastor is not so much a behavior modifier as he is a matchmaker. Not my job to change you. It's my job to help you fall in love with God. If something needs to change, he's God. He can take care of that. You just need to get closer to him. I can help with that. So when do you think the father loved the prodigal son the most? When he gave him the inheritance? When he let him go? While he waited? When he met him at the road? At the party? No. The father loved his son completely throughout the entire process. It's the only constant in the story. There's no daisy petals in this story. There's no he loves me, he loves me not. Based upon my circumstances and my behavior. No daisy petals. How cool is that? That's awesome. Nothing the son did changed the father's love for him. He loves me. He loves me, he loves me, he loves me. The accounts and the events of the story cannot be accounted for by the varying love of the father. Only by the varying perceptions of the sons. The sons were never less loved. Never less loved. They only lived 
less loved. When the son took the money and ran away, he lived less loved. When he wasted it on selfish pleasures, he lived less loved. When he started back home practicing and repeating that speech in his mind, he lived less loved. It's the difference between perception and reality. Finally, home, well-fed, well-dressed at the father's table, it sunk in. It sunk in. He was loved. He was always loved. Unfortunately for us, most of our lives are spent living less loved. And my God, I want to see that change. When we worry that God will ask us for some terrible sacrifice, we live less loved. When we indulge in sin, we live less loved. When our circumstances give way to anxiety, we live less loved. When we try to earn God's favor by our own efforts, we live less loved. When we get caught up in religious obligation to make ourselves acceptable to Him, we live less loved because it's a lie. You know, that's the story behind the older brother. He did all that was expected of him, but he too missed out on the relationship the father had always wanted with his sons. So look at it this way. The younger son represents those who run from God in rebellion. Okay? Right? We can see that easily. The older son represents those who try to impress God with their religious commitment. The younger son is those who run in rebellion. The older son, those who are religious. Both never come to the depths of relationship that the father wants with them. Rebellion or religion, the result's the same. We miss out on intimacy with Papa. And he misses out on the relationship he so desperately wants with us. The scripture says that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. One of the greatest desires of my heart, one of the things I feel that God's called me to, is to help others live in the fullness of the freedom that's already theirs in Christ. You're free. He's already set you free. He's done everything necessary for your freedom. And he did it with this one singular objective in mind that you and him would fall madly and passionately in love with one another. Everything about your life hinges on this one simple question. Everything. Do you know how incredibly loved you are? Isn't it about time you found out? I'm almost done. Listen to the words of Ephesians chapter 3. Paul's praying for the church at Ephesus. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. 
and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. There's room for more. There's room to go deeper. There's room to experience more of Him. I want to live my life knowing, just as Paul prayed, the incredible dimensions of God's extravagant love. So let's pray. Would you guys close your eyes? So Holy Spirit, come. Lord, would you speak to each one of us now, each individual? Would you show us where we live less loved than we have to? Show us in what arena of our lives we we live less loved than you want us to. Lord, for some of us, it makes us run away. For others, it just makes us work harder. We don't want to be religious or we don't want to rebel. We just want you. Lord, write in our hearts today the truth. And let that truth set us free that you love us because you love us because you love us because you love us because that's who you are. Lord, take us on a journey. Take us down the path to that realization. I pray that community church would be a a group of people who live loved. Make of us a community where we live secure in the knowledge of your love for us. I pray that we would experience your love in personal and real and tangible ways so that it would be undeniable for us. Do that, Lord. Teach your people this truth. Let them experience this truth so that they can live free. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. So I can just feel heat kind of washing over my back and up my head. I know it's the Spirit of God. It's His warm, comforting presence. And so it looks like this to me. It's like a cold day, cold winter day. A damp, cold winter day. And a warm blanket. Someone takes out a blanket that's been in a warmer and wraps it around you. And that's His love. So Lord, just as I feel that now, would you do that? For each of us, wrap the warmth of your love around us. Lord, cover us, protect us. Fill us fresh and new with your spirit. Have your way with us. We invite you to come in and act like God in our midst. Do God-sized things. Do the things that only you could do. Take us deeper. Take us further. Thank you, Lord, for the road behind us. 
Thank you for where we are now. But take us where you want us to go. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. Happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy time with your families. And that cleanup captain's meeting, we'll do that next Sunday instead. I didn't realize it was a holiday this weekend. So go have some fun. I'll see you throughout the week.